to the new Diplomatist Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Garrison Rado, and today I'm very honored to be joined by a special guest, Mr. Greg Lawson. Mr. Lawson, thank you so much for joining the new Diplomatist Podcast. Thanks for coming on today. Hey, thank you very much. Really appreciate the opportunity. It's a fascinating world and a, and a fascinating and unique moment in uh, world history uh, to be looking at uh, what what's transpiring in Europe and Asia and everything else. It's just amazing to watch the end of one order and what appears to be the creation of something Incohate, but different. Absolutely. Well, it really feels like every month starting to feel like a year at this rate. Ever since 2020, the, the, the lifetime is feeling a little longer now. But before we get ahead of ourselves, Mr. Lawson, would you mind giving a little bit of a background for the listeners about your background and foreign policy, your interest in the field, and, and maybe some of what you do as well uh, for the Ohio General Assembly? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I am a contributing analyst with a geopolitical online consultancy called Wikistrat. Uh, and so I've been engaged uh, for a number of years. I started off helping to uh, sort of help recruit some analysts and, and do some background interviews and things as they were putting it together. It's basically a multi, a, a large-scale sort of crowdsourced, but crowdsourced with carefully curated individuals to bring different sorts of backgrounds to play so that as different kinds of simulations would happen uh, for well, you know a company looking to get involved in some sort of part of the world, as opposed to just having like five consultants go in and tell somebody something, they would scenarioize things and work with a broad range of consultants and have several key folks who could curate some of the, the key insights that were there. So it's really crowdsourcing, but crowdsourcing with quality control, I guess is sort of the way that I would liken it. And so I've certainly participated in a number of, of, of the different scenarios and kind of uh, simulations that they put together. Uh, I was, uh, I nearly joined the U.S. Foreign Service, got through all the stuff, got my security clearance. Uh, I'll be honest, my language skills weren't the best, so I didn't, uh, I, I, so clearly I did something right because I, I had the PI come out and get all the stuff so I could get my clearance, uh, but uh, but I, I uh, ultimately did not go that route, had some extra, had another child, and, and there were some, some questions, and I was very happy with some other stuff that happened to me professionally. So I decided that perhaps that door was one that I would uh, keep closed. But I've always been fascinated by those issues uh, in foreign policy. And I work at a think tank in Ohio uh, called the Buckeye Institute for a free market think tank. I work on a lot of state policy as well, which any more state policy and federal policy and even international policy are incredibly interlinked today, more so than ever before. Uh, and we you know, talked a little bit about it, but it's absolutely fascinating, for example, uh, Intel is getting ready to build a huge semiconductor manufacturing plant right here in central Ohio. And the real reason this is happening is because of the need to reshore, to build out supply chain for chips, because that's been a problem since COVID. Uh, and so if you didn't have COVID, if you didn't have the challenge of China, I don't know that this would be happening, but it's going to have an incredible economic impact in Ohio uh, for thousands of people in the state of Ohio. So that's an example of security, foreign policy, domestic policy, economic policy, all sort of interlinking together, and it's getting harder and harder to disentangle. So to me, that's trying to work with and educate policymakers uh, at the state level, occasionally members of Congress, uh, is something that I think is really important to do because it's a job of folks like me as analysts to, to, to look at and pull all the information, do original 
original research, uh, but, uh, but then draw some of the connections and to help people contextualize the information. There's tons of data out there, but what does the data mean? And so it's something that I think is extremely important is to be able to bring that context in for folks. So that's some work that I do uh, at a state level uh, with some of the, uh, again, the simulations on a lot of the foreign policy issues that I'll do through my Wikistrat affiliation. And, uh, you know, this is just one of these issues where I've, I, I grew up in a, in a non-political household, but I developed an interest in politics. And the more you get interested in politics, the more you start running into some of the more fascinating figures of history. And as a big reader and a fan of history, I just kind of got uh, pulled into some of Kissinger's writings and uh, really, really uh, have read a lot of that. I think it definitely influences some of my, my frame, of, frame of reference. Uh, and uh, from there on, it was sort of uh, uh, working to read all the classics of, of general IR theory uh, and, and some of the main national security thinkers and uh, to be able to better understand the Cold War, the aftermath of the Cold War, and then, of course, what is the new world uh, look like, whether it's a new world order or a new world disorder, as the case might be, uh, and, and probably, in fact, a multipolar world order, which is what I think is probably most likely to uh, be the resting place for the uh, imminent uh, future. Well, you know, it's an absolutely wonderful background to bring to the podcast because I do, I do think it is important that particularly in the foreign policy you know, field broadly writ, including podcasts and so on, that we do expand these discussions to to all aspects and perspectives because, like you said, it is becoming a holistic world in which, you know, private sector, you know, non-governmental organizations, as you said, state governments, they all have a role to play internationally as much as the federal government in some respects, even if they aren't the ones setting final, you know, totality policy from D.C., they're still engaged in very innovative ways. And so we appreciate you taking the time today. And I won't test your Cantonese uh, in this episode, so you won't have to relive anything from the uh, the language test for the Foreign <laughs> Service. But, uh, you know, it's funny you bring up Kissinger because it's exactly where I wanted to begin as we start off maybe talking a bit about about Russia and the situation in Ukraine, which is obviously dominating the headlines for good reason. You know, if we look back at arguably Kissinger's most famous book, uh, we could argue whether it was his best or not, certainly right up there, but, uh, you know, 1994, Henry Kissinger publishes Diplomacy. Uh, it was a book praised by, you know, New York Times. It was a book praised by Margaret Thatcher. Um, it was a book praised by just about everybody who picked it up, even if they disagreed with a realist framework. They said this is perceptive. And barely 25 pages into the book, he launches into a discussion about Russia. And I, I wouldn't mind quoting it real fast. He says, analysts frequently explain Russian expansionism as stemming from a sense of insecurity. But Russian writers have far more often justified Russia's outward thrust as a messianic vocation. Russia on the march rarely showed a sense of limits. Thwarted, it tended to withdraw into sullen resentment. For most of its history, Russia has been a cause looking for opportunity, end quote. I, I just think that that's such a fitting quote in light of what we've seen with Vladimir Putin over the last you know, little over a month now in terms of his intervention with Ukraine. So as a realist yourself, as a fan of Kissinger, and in light of that passage, can you kind of give us just a broad stance of, of, of your feeling of where are we at in terms of this conflict, in terms of the, the status of Russia, from the Russian perspective, with their army starting to become a bit more bogged down with the heavy economic pressures motivated as they are, not just by insecurity, but also by sort of this, this messianic expansion, uh, a cause looking for an opportunity. Where are we at with Putin, in your opinion? And we'll kind of take it from there. Very broad question, but just kind of to kick things off and we'll dig in from there. Where are we at with Putin? 
Well, it is the question of the moment, really. I mean, this is, I think this is more so than 9-11, and in some ways perhaps even more so than COVID. This is, this is the catalytic event that seems to be shaking up and scrambling world perceptions. Uh, it, it's kind of the, the jungle is back, the world, uh, the end of history is over for Europe and certainly Western Europe. Uh, and so there's a lot of that that's sort of, I think, permeating out there as a direct result of this because this is the largest uh, land invasion in Europe uh, since World War II. And so this, this incredible uh, time period of relative peace, I, you know, I mean, obviously there was the Yugoslavian breakup, there was there were interventions by the Soviet Union uh, in Hungary in, in 56 and Czechoslovakia in 68. So it's not like it was absolutely peaceful, but in a grand sense, it was relatively peaceful when you look at it from the lens of sort of the first half of the 20th century. And and so what is this? And I think the challenge is, is that the Russia question is still uh, there. Uh, you know, there, there used to be a question of what were you going to do about the, the German question, you know, and how is that going to address itself? Well, there's still, and there has been for centuries, even beyond that, even longer in some ways than the German question, there's been the Russian question. And, and what is Russia? You know, because Russia has, there's a lot of cross-currents even within Russia between the westernizing, sort of modernizing thinking, a lot of that sort of going back to Peter the Great, but then you have some of the more Eurasian thinkers, more of the Orthodox Christian thinking, uh, the Third Rome sort of concept that plays a role And I think that Kissinger, as usual, is extremely perceptive. Uh, And as a continent, as somebody who who left Europe but has a continental sensibility uh, to him, uh, he brings that to the table, which is something I think a lot of times American policymakers don't don't have the same tactile sensation of it as someone like Kissinger, who had to to flee Germany in the 30s uh, because he was a, a, a Jew and to flee once Nazis took over. Uh, I think he gets it in a way that, that, that sometimes a lot of Americans don't. And I think Russia is an incredibly insecure power and an incredibly ambitious power at the same time, and it's a very volatile mix. Uh, there's, I don't think there's any question that there is a strong, strong sense of imperial nostalgia that drives Putin. And, and as, as you mentioned in that quote, a messianic sense to it. I think he certainly has uh, grown into that throughout his 20 two or so years in power. Um, and he certainly picked up on that even more after he came back to power in 2012. He's, he's really hit that. Some of the thinkers that he quotes from uh, are, are, are very, it's clear that he's looking for the mission. And I think that what you have is uh, there is, whether it was the Orthodox Christian messianic sort of concept, whether there was a bit of a, I'm going to westernize concept that Peter the Great brought into Russia uh, even even when you think about communism as an overlay, Kennan brought the point up that, in a sense, communism was sort of an overlay towards traditional Russian sort of senses. So I think what you've got is a country that does have legitimate security issues. They've been invaded an awful lot from the West. Well, they've been invaded a lot, period. Um, and I think that there is that inherent insecurity because of geography. So I think that that does play a role and I do think that when analysts say that that is a significant issue, I think it is too. Uh, but I think it gets intermixed with the mythology and the greatness that Russia is sort of this unique power. I mean, we think of ourselves, I think Americans, obviously, as the, the indispensable, the exceptional power, uh, and that we have American exceptionalism. Well, Russia has a sense of exceptionalism too. It's a more conservative, not as opposed to more classical liberal 
perspective that the that America has. But it's a, it's a very much infused with religion, very much infused with we are the good, and this, and we in fact going back to you know like we Constantinople fell back in the fourteen hundreds, you know there's a sort of sense that permeated up because of the the conversion over to Eastern Orthodoxy uh, that that somebody had to stand up for Christianity in a world that where Christianity seemed to be maybe on the run, or at least their understanding of their variant of Christianity was on the run. So I think there's there's an incredible amount of legitimate security and concerns and, and fears intermixed with a historical desire to mean something and its meaning and its purpose. And Russia has always tried to to mean something on the world stage, to be taken seriously. Uh, and in order to do that, it had the ability to expand in ways that a lot of other countries did. Some of that's geography. Some of it's because there was obviously a lot of Spartan areas that weren't overly uh, populated for a while, and, and to the extent that the areas were populated, uh, ever since, I guess, like the Ivans, uh, or I, certainly Ivan the Fourth or Ivan the Terrible, uh, they spread uh, dramatically. Uh, so I think Kissinger is generally right. I think he may, in that quote, downplay some of the legitimate security issues a little more uh, than I do, but I think that he's not wrong in the sense that there's definitely an, a sense of, of need for purpose. I mean, I think a lot of civilizations and, and have that need. What is it that motivates you to be successful and to, to exist? And I think that's something that Russia has always kind of struggled with. And it's gone under different guises, like I say, uh, uh, from the kind of being torn between a Western perspective and a little bit more of an Eastern, and, and in some cases, and some thinkers, a Eurasian perspective. Uh, but ultimately, it's a desire to mean something on the world stage. And uh, I, I think Russia, any leader, not just Putin, would have a hard time if Russia is ignored or Russia is perceived as weak. I think any leader in Russia would have a hard time accepting that because it goes against uh, a philosophy that has been an undercurrent uh, throughout their history ever since, uh, certainly since Moscow uh, became the center point of Russia. You can kind of debate about how far back you want to go into Kiev and the Kievan Rus back all the way back into the nine, eight, nine hundreds. But, uh, but I definitely think there's some truth there, but I do want to stress, I think security matters too. And I think that analysts who talk about the insecurity of Russia, I think that is, I think that's what makes them so aggressive in some ways is this combination of a need for purpose, a need to spread with fear of what happens if they don't. You know, it's a really fascinating discussion, and, and while you were talking about it, it got me thinking in a way, and even going a different direction than I was planning on the podcast, because you're right, and when it comes to the issue of security, I, I'm struck by something. I mean, if you look at the last, you know, century, century and a half, particularly the, you know, absolute cataclysm that was the Second World War, when you have the rise of Nazi Germany, or the very militarized imperial version of Japan in the 1940s, both of them defeated by 1945, and yet, by the 21st century, both highly integrated into the world economy, largely westernized in the sense that they are pro-Western countries, pro-democratic ideals. Of course, Japan is an Eastern country culturally, but still very much leaning towards that, that angle of things civilizationally, if you will. But it's interesting to me that when Germany fell, it was very easy to say, okay, the Nazis are no longer in power we're dealing with something new. This is a post-Nazi Germany. And then Germany is immediately partitioned 
between East and West. And so the Western nations, the United Kingdom, Britain, France, while still harboring a suspicion, particularly in Britain, notably up to, to Thatcher, harbored a suspicion of, of Germany potentially being reunited out of fear of the Nazi menace returning by some other name, there still was a sense that we're dealing with West Germany. The problem is now the communists on the other side of the Iron Curtain. And so there was a, there was a new front to be guarded against. And so they could preserve the West while guarding against the East until reunification. And that comes with the fall of the communists. Same thing with Japan. Japan's conquered. The people driving the militarism have been removed from power. Now we have the threat of the Soviet Union, of communist China, and we can focus on that threat and embrace Japan as a partner. When the Soviet Union collapses in the early 1990s, Russia becomes a new entity, the Russian Federation, that is. The Soviet Union is gone, but I feel like there was no replacement for the West to focus on, to say, this is the new enemy, let us integrate Russia and partner with them to counter fill-in-the-blank. China was still rising in power. We didn't yet feel the threat in the 90s. I mean, we were still integrating them into free trade agreements and so on. You know, Islamic extremism wouldn't hit till the early 2000s, and that's much more non-state and ethereal. So Russia reaches this really odd inflection point of history where they too are sort of purged of this, this malignant ideology, in this case communism, but no one knows what to do with what's left. And do you think that that was a missed opportunity in the 90s where we have a Russian federation heavily weakened economically, militarily barely weakened, you know, not sure of its role in the world? Should they have been integrated into Europe or into the West in a different way than was approached? Or do you think that this this sort of sullenness that has developed was just an inevitable course of countries that can't get along? I think there were a lot of mistakes that were made. Uh, I think that it was always a very likely outcome that there would be a sullenness to Russia. Uh, so I, 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 I can't say with absolute certainty that if you had bent over backwards to do everything, it would have made everything go away and there wouldn't have been tensions. But I, I kind of go back to, to a world restored, the, uh, which was the doctoral thesis of Kissinger turned into a book. And, and, and obviously that book is about post-Napoleonic uh, Europe and sort of the concert of Europe system. And, and one of the key things I think that, that Kissinger really hits on in that book is the way that the other powers, now granted these were more conservative powers because they were ultimately still, you know, led by kings fundamentally. Sure. Uh, though they, and they put down more liberal revolutions and things like that. But, but they, what they did is they did, they, at least all the great powers got around the table and they were able to discuss things and they integrated France. They let France be at the table. They didn't let France, after Napoleon was abdicated the second time and the final time, they didn't let it wallow in all of its resentments. And I think that uh, that is something that didn't really happen to Germany after World War One, and we know where that inevitably led. Right, Treaty of Versailles and all that. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah, Versailles and what the, and, and how that was something that was food fodder for for Hitler and the Nazi movement. And I think I don't think that the West treated Russia, frankly, as negatively as it as, as in many ways the West treated Germany in the interwar years between World War One and World War Two. But I don't think it really knew what to do with Russia either. And I think that there was a fairly simplistic view that, well, you know, we're going to send in political advisors and economic advisors. They're going to do kind of shock therapy to their economy, and they're going to become a free market. And this is great, and this is wonderful. And, and 
but we're never going to really, they didn't let him into NATO, they did create a NATO consultation council, but they, they didn't really want to let him into NATO, uh, so they, they weren't sure what the, the security architecture was. They were never letting the European and, Union either, or European community right. beforehand. They yeah. did, they, no offers, no, not even a discussion about it. And interestingly enough, you know, Putin, when he was first in power, uh, he did it in his typical way that was pretty aggressive, and you know, I want to kind of jump in line. But it, it, there seems to be a lot of documentation that Putin actually was asking about being a member of NATO at one point, uh, early on, I think like in 2000 or so. Well, there have been time. declassified documents as early as I believe it was 1994 in the Clinton administration of internal discussions saying, well, we're not ready to invite them yet, but should they democratize, should right. things proceed the right way, maybe NATO goes from being a collective alliance against the threat to becoming collective security in general. And we incorporate Moscow into that. And of course, that didn't that didn't come about, but... And I think that actually is one of the key mistake, missed opportunities is that very point. Uh, I'm not sure that Russia would have done it. I suspect that Yeltsin uh, probably would have strongly considered that. <laughs> yes. I think there's some evidence that he wanted that. Uh, but instead, what you ended up with is you ended up with a NATO that bombed Serbia, if you recall, you know, in the you know, Kosovo situation under Bill Clinton. They didn't even go to the UN Security Council to get a resolution to do that. Uh, and Yeltsin's like, whoa, what's going on here? See, that, so that's even pre-Putin. So there was already some evidence that Europe was not sure what to do with Russia. It, it, it wasn't necessarily intentionally at that stage yet being antagonistic, but it wasn't really being as welcoming either. And obviously you did have the challenge of Eastern European countries and the Baltics, who for obvious reasons, uh, we're very concerned about what a future Russia might look like. And if you tried to bring Russia in, what did that do to these countries who had suffered sort of under, uh, well, not a sort of, but very much so in the Baltics cases, and certainly part of Poland was erased off the map multiple times through German-Russian cooperation, unfortunately. Right, right. And so there's a lot of reasoning to think that, that you would, uh, that they would have a heartburn over that. But by not doing that, uh, I think you left a situation where Russia was a bit adrift, and Yeltsin ultimately was a great, in a sense, freedom fighter uh, towards the end of the Soviet era, but he wasn't obviously a particularly good president. Uh, he, he had a lot of personal foibles, his family had a lot of corruption issues, uh, and so there was a lot of problems that, that got generated by what ultimately was a fairly weak president as time went on, and, and it became obvious, I think, to other people, especially some of the security apparatus from which Putin obviously comes, uh, that, that Russia was becoming weaker and weaker. They devalue their currency, and I think whatever that was, 97, 98, the, the ruble crisis, um, the West has to come bail them out uh, financially, but on, their, but on the West's own terms. And I think what you'll see at that point is it, by not having early on tried to wrap them back into the West and to find a security architecture that could have room for them, you kept the door open to fears that the West would never let you in. And I think that is the soil from which someone like Putin probably was likely to come uh, from no matter what. and, and again, like I said, you can't be 100% guaranteed that Russia would have become something that we would appreciate. But I think, and there would have always probably been some inherent tensions because Russia had that weird, like I mentioned before, west-east sort of right. split. And, 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 and It's a hybrid. It doesn't fit neatly. Yes. It doesn't really fit neatly in either. It
uh, a lot of people, you know, even some Russians will say, well, you know, we learned to sort of be a certain way because we had to, uh, we were under the Mongol yoke for several hundred years after the Mongols took over back in the 1200s, right? So you, you have that kind of, of feel on one hand, but there's always been that kind of push to want to look out. When you go to St. Petersburg, the city of Peter the Great, you feel like you're in France. I mean, everything about St. Petersburg feels all, well, there's a few of the Indian Dove churches, but it doesn't really feel Russian. It almost feels, it feels Western European. Right. Uh, and, and it's not surprising. That's actually very intentionally what Peter the Great wanted to have happen. So it's not a surprise that way. But because of that, there's just an amazing amount of internal tension. And I think it's not clear that even if the West had wanted to pull them in, that there wouldn't have been other elements within Russia that would have pulled back from that for cultural concerns as well. That said, the fact that there wasn't a stronger effort to attempt to do that, I think is going to be one of the great missed opportunities. And I think Kissinger sort of has alluded to that. I, I Before he died, George Kennan certainly uh, made that clear. And I think Kennan is one of the most, uh, arguably the greatest single Russia hand that the United States has ever produced. Uh, so listening to his concerns about it, certainly he was against, for example, he was actually very much against NATO expansion when it first happened under Clinton um, because he thought that this would reinforce all the negative aspects and some of the anti-Western aspects within Russia. Of course, Kennan's prophecy appears to have come to full fruition as time has played itself out. Um, so I think it's a great missed opportunity to not have done a better job of doing something like how the post-Napoleonic France got integrated into the Greek power system during the concert of Europe. Um, well, and you know... Because, and, and, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no. You know, I just I agree with you in terms of that. And I think that that kind of segues nicely into the, the next round of questioning, which really is this question of, you know, it's easy and I think understandable and perhaps even good to an extent that countries with similar minded interests. And by that, I mean, sort of this this pursuit, this respect for a liberal democracy, this idealism around uh, we want, you know, national self-determination and no decisions made over the head of Ukraine, for instance, in the situation. Um, they should be permitted to function as a democracy, as a separate country, and, and pick their own path. That being said, despite the Biden administration and I think the general American stance being the door to NATO will remain open because that's Kiev's choice. The, the truth of the matter is, as Zelensky, the president of Ukraine himself, has made clear in rather angry tones, sympathetically angry tones, that you know, listen, you say the door is open, but but where's the entrance? Because I don't see it, and, and I don't see a path for getting there. And frankly, I'm not sure you want us in there, and maybe that's okay, because we'll just, you know, take care of this ourselves or what have you. And so there, while there is a respect for national sovereignty in regards to Ukraine, there's also still, despite rather high-minded liberalism statements, there's a very realist streak here that the United States, even under a Democrat president, which tend to leave more neoliberal, you know, they understand that you can't just put Ukraine into NATO and expect it to happen in a vacuum. We can debate whether it's a good decision or not, but they're not even really willing to consider it, which leads to when this war is finally over, and who knows how long that will be, we're a month in now, 
Um, certainly Russia's reported losses are high enough to say it might not last as long as one might like from the Russian military's perspective. When the final conclusions are drawn, what in your mind do you think is the bare minimum that Putin would accept as a conclusion? Because he didn't get what he clearly was aiming at, which is a rapid decapitation, sort of a fait accompli, a, a mass effect, shock and awe, whatever you want to call it. To seize Kiev, depose Zelensky, put in a puppet and move on before the West really had time to deal with it. That didn't work. So now he's in a grind. He seems to be shifting forces to the eastern half of the country away from the capital. Potentially it's unconfirmed, but that's the news of the day. What is his acceptable line? He keeps referring to these specific demands such as recognition of Crimea, neutralization of Ukraine. And that is that they're not aligned with the West openly. But... He also has these sort of vague demands that don't really match up with reality, like denazification, which doesn't really have a, a correlation to the facts on the ground. So what do you think is his bare minimum out of this? And what should the West be prepared to support Ukraine, who might be walking away feeling pretty good, all things considered, about their military performance, thereby less willing to negotiate or to give concessions? What should be the minimum meeting ground for a way out of this, an off-ramp, if you will, that might be acceptable? Well, and this is the this is a very dangerous question because uh, you know there's an incentive for Ukraine. The question is, you know, do we do you keep pressing Ukraine to sort of have maximalist demands that keep the war essentially going and grinding out Russians? But by doing that, you essentially also cause continued significant casualties amongst Ukrainians not to mention the bombing out of the infrastructure and everything else, and what that's going to mean in the long term for Ukraine. I mean, they've lost, what, 4 million people and have fled. That's close to 10% of the population. 10 million uh, displaced in general, and 4 million, I think, abroad was the last number, and something upwards of 90% poverty rate if it were to continue across the country, given the infrastructure destruction. So... You know, you, you, you've got to think that there has to be some kind of a deal, and, and there's no way that Russia's going to say, I'm going to give Crimea back. I think it's unrealistic, frankly, to think that they're going to just sit back on Donbass. They might not immediately annex Donbass. Maybe they want a referendum or do something like that. But I think eventually you're going to look at Donbass and region uh, and possibly a, a, a land bridge down to Crimea. I think that is something that Putin is going to really, really probably want. Uh, and I think it's going to be difficult to say no to that unless you want to keep the war going on for a really, really long time. Uh, now, maybe and this gets to the question of who has what interests at stake, too, right? Uh, while I think it would be bad American policy to have a long-term insurgency because I think the threat of escalation with Russia is a threat that is more significant with Russia than really anybody else in the world because of, obviously, nuclear weapons and the number of nuclear weapons that they have. Um, China is developing more nuclear weapons and we may end up in a situation like that with China someday. But right now, Russia is really the only country on Earth that can quite literally destroy the United States. Uh, so any kind of a conflict where you're funding an insurgency on their doorstep is going to have some inherent capacity to unexpectedly escalate. And I think that is an extraordinarily dangerous thing that should not be dismissed cavalierly. It's, it's a fundamental, uh, existential even, importance. Um, but, it, but there's a lot of folks in Washington who want to see Putin gone, and I think there's an element in Washington that uh, thinks that a long-term insurgency will 
make it harder and harder for Putin to retain power in Russia. Well, and, and not and, to interrupt too much, but, you know, even on that point, we've seen not only in Washington, but in London, we've seen recent weeks Prime Minister Boris Johnson claim that Britain would not resume a normal relationship with Putin um, should he remain in power. They would not, you know, resume a normal relationship with Russia. Um, and well, he, he kind of he started to kind of walk that back a bit today. But yeah, as as you're about to point out, you know, Biden said something very similar. You know, how do you how do you deal yeah. with this guy still in power, basically? You know, and and you know, he sort of stepped back from that, but not really. And so you have at least two Western leaders who, if not calling for regime change, I mean, it's darn close. You know, that they're laying well, out I a think demand. Extremely dangerous. Yeah, and, and extremely dangerous uh, to to do it that way. Uh, and and I think the other thing is it's it's a bit, I think, presumptuous on their part because the, the people that are doing the fighting and dying are Ukrainians. Right. And, yeah, we're supplying them the weapons and we've supplied logistics and training and, and there's a lot of activity, uh, you know, and, and uh, individuals going over to help humanitarian from a humanitarian standpoint. But, I mean, they're the ones dying. If you want to keep this war going on because you want to geopolitically do to Russia, then what you're essentially saying is it's okay for Ukrainians to die in order to accomplish that end. And right. I think that is a uh, something that is not good policy. Uh, I think obviously there's moral questions, but if you believe in realism and real politics, sometimes the moral things aren't the, the key the key consideration. But I, I, I do think you got to be aware of the fact that that is a pretty darn a moral position to take. And two, I think there's a question as to whether or not it's a very, it's even a, the right policy position to take, even aside from the moral equation. And what do you and think I the actually, perspective I is? It on both sides. And what do you think the perspective is too from that point? While we're on the subject, when when you have Western leaders, you know, and and just to qualify as well, I mean, understandably, people, you know, myself included, are horrified by the images coming out of Ukraine, horrified by the fact that Putin undertook this, because regardless of the the nuances that policymakers and theorists can apply to Russia and say, well, this makes sense from a Russian historical perspective or because of Putin's views personally or what have you. At the end of the day, we are talking about mass destruction of civilian areas and other things that will no doubt eventually be proven to be war crimes under international law. You know, at the end of the day, if the United States and the United Kingdom, as the two stated examples, are not seriously pursuing diplomacy. As far as I know, Emmanuel Macron, the French president, is the only one consistently picking up the phone out of the major Western leaders, and it's easy to kick his attempts as idealistic, but at least he's trying to bring about diplomacy. I don't hear Biden or or Johnson necessarily doing that. They're comfortable with discussing an exit plan, not just out of the war, but out of Putin, which he said was very presumptive. What kind of message does that send to very insecure, very top-heavy you know, extremely suspicious and heavily militarized powers like China as well, who who have long suspected the United States wants to undermine, you know, the, the Chinese Communist Party, Xi Jinping, as well as other countries such as Venezuela or Iran, you know, these sort of middleweight rogue powers, North Korea, who now has nuclear weapons. You know, they're going to look at that and go, in my opinion, and tell me if you agree or not, but they're going to look at that and go, see, at the end of the day, America will make deals and they'll sign pledges, and they'll they'll play things with some realism, but they don't trust you if you're an authoritarian, and they will work day and night to get you out sooner or later. Um, and I think that that just reduces the chances for diplomacy, but give me your perspective on that. Oh, I, I agree 100%. In fact, I think it's, it's, in fact, we're already there. I mean, we've already proven this. <laughs> I mean, Gaddafi 
we kind of deal with but, but never before I think with the nation quite this size though I mean well, like no, you mentioned I mean we're right. talking about the, the obviously a lot smaller right I mean what, the, what the we're doing with Russia's un Precedented in terms of the economic sanctions, the, the, oh, yeah. the diplomatic isolation applied to Moscow. I, I'm struggling my own brain, but I can't think of a case outside of a direct war, such as what we had with Hitler in the 40s and so on. You know, in times oh, where close. where we're not immediately fighting Russians directly, I, I can't think of a time where we've isolated a power to this degree, short of full direct conflict. Um, you know, and, and then tied it to regime change as an idea at this scale. Well, I agree. We haven't done it with a country of this nature. But I think that, interestingly enough, one of the things that has already made Putin very concerned about it is actually Gaddafi. That was actually apparently a big deal to him. There's a lot of anecdotal information that, that he felt betrayed by the fact that NATO went beyond what initially it said it was going to do from a humanitarian standpoint, Libya, and ultimately led directly to a NATO attack on the convoys. Actually, what led to Gaddafi specifically, approximately, to him getting pulled out of a drainage ditch killed, right? Uh, Putin apparently was really, again, that reinforced his perception that the West would betray him uh, the first chance it gets. And I would say that that the lesson is, of course the West is going to betray you. I mean, there's no question the West is going to do that. Uh, obviously it's going to. If you're Xi Jinping, why would you ever trust us? Because, that we, I mean, diplomacy, the first opportunity that they get to, now they might not do it until you have done another activity and, and the opportunity is, is there uh, but I'm sure that, that there's the thought that that's what's going to happen and obviously you know and it's interesting because I think authoritarian regimes on one hand I think they overstate the case on the other hand I, I, I think that they have more validity than we'd like to think they do when we they critique us for this which is to say we have a lot of these international institutions that go over and do a lot of the democracy promotion and the promotion of, of the Western values and a lot of the stuff like that. And we like to think of that as uh, kind of positive cross-cultural sort of exchange. Uh, someone like Putin and certainly someone like Xi Jinping in China sees that as potentially attempting to contaminate your country with decadent values that's going to undermine the government and that that's actually the intent of why you're doing it. I don't, they sometimes, they over, that when I say they overstate this, they don't realize that a lot of these groups may get some government funding, but they're not really necessarily controlled by the government, right? right. Uh, but right. they, in their mind, because I think partly of the nature of the regimes that they are accustomed to, they can't really fathom how that isn't actually a direct act of the government. Right. So it reinforces in their mind a, a degree of paranoia that's already inherent there, and it just gets inflamed by it. But this kind of talk, this kind of loose, functionally, I mean, talk about regime change. I mean, Biden can walk it back and Johnson can walk it back. But there's not really, you can't really look at what they were saying without saying that uh, even if you just look at it from a Freudian slip type perspective, they were calling for regime change. Yes, absolutely. Point blank. Uh, and, 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 and there's no other way to really cut, do it than to put lipstick on that pig. That's what they said. And if you have concern about it, you're going to think that. I think actually that's part of the issue with China. Not maybe backing Russia as much as some people might have thought, uh, but I think China has certainly taken Russia's diplomatic position. Oh, without question. Without question. Um, I think one of the reasons they do that is because they know that if Russia is neutered, they could be next. And and the only reason they might not be next 
is because of how big their economy is, right. of course, which is a big reason why we may have a hard time doing to China what we're doing to or what the West is, is oh, doing yes. to Russia. I mean, China so ten, ten times the size of Russia economically, exactly. heavily integrated in the world economy, particularly on a production side that's difficult to replicate, going back to your idea about Intel and the chip fabrication in Ohio. I mean, yep. um, you know, China, far more ideological not only is their military larger, but you you arguably have a force far more dedicated to the defense of their national ideals than than Russian conscripts were for theirs. Um, but you know, kind of as we head into the last couple questions here, because I do want to be respectful of your time, sir. You know, if we broaden this discussion to another related aspect in the news, you know, you see a lot of flack being directed at countries like Israel or India because they haven't gone whole hog, you know, fully on board with the sanctions regime and the diplomatic isolation that's been, you know, put towards Moscow in response to this invasion. But then you have the Indians and several of the former ambassadors I've spoken to, you know, some of the Indian press, it's been a little more outspoken about it. You know, they, they publish a, a list of grievances in reverse and say, look, we've always had cordial relations with Russia um, and we're not interested in jeopardizing that. We, we do not approve of their actions in Ukraine, but we're not going to cut the relationship with them. And when they got pushback, they said, look, you attack us for buying Russian oil. Well, Europe's buying Russian oil. You know, the Germans are buying Russian oil. I think it was something to the tune of a 40 or $50 billion since the um, conflict began in Ukraine has still flowed between Western European countries uh, and Russia. And so India is articulating this idea of a differentiated response that will stand with you for international law. We don't believe in invading other countries without force. I mean, India doesn't really have a practice of that anyway. Um, but we are not going to go so far as saying we're cutting off diplomatic relations with Russia economically um, or in military cooperation and so on. And Israel, for similar reasons in Iran. Do you feel that the United States is starting to enter a new era where it will become necessary to kind of create some more policy breathing space with partners that we're trying to recruit like India or partners that are more established like Israel to say, okay, fine, we'll, we'll walk with you as far as you're willing and then we'll give you some some freedom to you know maneuver. Or do you feel that this is actually as a crisis going to reinforce this somewhat more rigid, perhaps more brittle perspective is highly ideological that, no, you meet our litmus test for Western ideals and loyalty, or sooner or later, we're going to have to find other partners as much as we can. Do you think that America is moving towards that more rigid response or a more flexible response in light of Ukraine? Well, I certainly hope that it moves towards a more flexible response because that's the right thing to do. Uh, I fear that it's going to become uh, more rigid now, there, you know, the one thing I will say is, there, you know, the, the one good thing is for all the critiquing that's going on, at least we haven't sanctioned India yet. You know, I mean, there was talk, there was even talk even before the conflict about maybe sanctioning India under the old sanctions, going back to Crimea, because India was purchasing air defense systems and things like that from Russia. <laughs> and, yes. and, and, and fortunately, they didn't do that. But there was some serious talk about it, which I thought was a, a, the height of absurdity. And, and so I think this is a challenge is, uh, the one thing I worry about though, is there's a lot of people in America that uh, have come through the elite kind of academic institutions. And a lot of people who do foreign policy tend to be, it's, it's funny. They, they, they tend to be all about diversity from a philosophical standpoint, but when it comes right down to it, there's not a whole lot of diversity in their thinking processes. And they, they think that they're very uh, tolerant, but in some ways they're only tolerant if you meet their litmus test, mm. which gets to the 
right and aren't able to make the cost-benefit analysis that is absolutely essential to successful foreign policy. Uh, flexibility is key, right? I mean, there, there are some key national interests that America has. One of the key ones is don't allow Eurasian hegemons to, to, to rear their head. I mean, that that is actually the number one geopolitical imperative probably for the United States is that one. And, and, and anything you can do to avoid that is probably what you need to do. Uh, and, and so I think that retaining flexibility is, the, is going to be something that we have to teach subsequent generations of both military personnel, certainly State Department diplomats, uh, and, and even to the degree that politicians have any awareness of foreign affairs, uh, politicians need to be made aware of that too. Litmus test in foreign policy is going to be a real mistake. Uh, we're going to be dealing with China for the foreseeable future, and there's going to be a wide range of people we're going to work with to deal with China, and they're going to have a wide range of interests. They're going to have a wide – there's going to be a lot of differentiation based upon proximity to China, too, by the way, of course. The closer a country is to China, the more they're going to have to look at China, too, and uh, be careful what they do. They may want to ally with us on one issue or another issue, but maybe they can't afford to on another one. And this is some of the stuff that I think gets to some of the questions that people like Elbridge Colby talks about in his good book, uh, excellent book, really, The, uh, the Strategy uh, of Denial, uh, that has gotten a lot of, of, of publicity lately, and I think he was on your podcast, and is how do you, how do you make sure that we, different countries are going to have different levels of pull into that vortex. We can't afford to have some kind of moralistic litmus test that says, if you don't do exactly what we say here, we're going to cut you off. Because if they're a strategically important country, we're going to need them. You can't cut India off because they're not doing what we want on, with Russia and Ukraine. To, 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 even, to even basically broach that topic is, frankly, unserious. Um, but the people are doing it. <laughs> but I don't yeah, I saw headlines that it was even a discussion in the White House for President Biden back, yeah. I think, in week two of the Ukraine conflict. So definitely. And I think it's disappointing. Yes. It's, un- it's fundamentally unserious. How can you be, ser- how can you be taken seriously? When you're talking about it. Well, the New York Times broke the story. The New York Times broke the story. I'm not sure if you you saw or not. It's been several weeks now, but it kind of got hushed up fairly quickly. But the New York Times even, which is not exactly a a paper critical of the Biden administration on a typical basis, you know, regardless of your political stance, it's a fairly shocking development that was admitted. They stated that there were overtures from the Biden administration in the foreign policy national security realm to Beijing, seeking that they act as a proxy, an intermediary, to try and walk Russia back from the brink. And we were sharing actionable intelligence with Beijing in order to try and convince them to move. And Beijing turned around and shared that intelligence on a direct line to Moscow and, and tipped their hand wow. in advance. And yeah, so, that's just so stupid. I mean, <laughs> China has a reason. They, China, the, the Sino-Russian acts, I tweet a lot about that. And I, I actually wrote an article for the National Interest, like I think, eight years ago. Uh, right about eight years ago, April of 2014, it was it was not long after Crimea, and there was the big natural gas deal between Russia and China. I said, look, this is America's ultimate geopolitical nightmare, a Sino-Russian axis. Zbigniew Brzezinski talked about that really the greatest potential threat to become like a Eurasian hegemon, right, is an axis between Russia and China, with China on top economically and Russia on, on bottom, relatively speaking. So a reversal from what a, a, a Sino-Soviet relationship was pre-Sino-Soviet split. But, you know, the reality is this is now <laughs> come into existence. I mean, they did the friendship thing right before the Winter Games uh, with, right. with the, the Beijing. And, uh, you know, I, you could overstate it. I mean, I, I, I think that 
I think that there's still a lot of inherent tension that are possible between Russia and China. But a lot of Western analysts are sort of like, those inherent tensions are inevitably going to take over and tear them up. And I'm, but, it, it, but enemy of my enemy is actually, is my friend, is actually a fairly good bonding experience. <laughs> yes. you, and, and for China, they're not going to completely sell Russia out because they know that this, that, that this is a proving ground for what might be coming their way, or at least they think it is. What? And... So they're not going to just do that. And, and by the way, the more Russia is a distraction, I mean, I don't think they want Ukraine blown up. I think they are surprised by how long this whole conflict has taken and are, are probably shocked by the imagery, as are a lot of other people. Uh, but And so it's very, I think, inconvenient to them that it's playing out the way that it is. But uh, uh, they're not going to sell out Russia because Russia still represents uh, a, a kind of a defensive sort of mechanism for them because the longer Europe and people are dealing with Russia, that inevitably means less funding available for, for dealing with China. I mean, Colby, again, Elbridge Colby talked a lot about that. you got to prioritize. If you got to prioritize Asia or Europe, that if you're thinking about the 20th century, Europe was the priority, and it, it always was. But the 21st century, it's Asia. Right. And if you keep getting sucked into the vortex of Europe or the vortex of the Middle East and some of the other stuff, you cannot, in an America constrained by already record deficits, constrained and now inflation, by yeah. a lot of domestic issues, how are you going to focus on Asia if you're focusing on, on the situation in Europe or focusing on Ukraine and Russia? It's and so, so the longer Russia can keep us distracted, that also plays a benefit to China. Uh, and so it, this relationship is strong, but it's, a lot of it is strong because of the simultaneous confrontation that America has, has done with both China and Russia. And I think the key thing is America really needed to prioritize. And I think, unfortunately, we did it. That in fact, we're doing the opposite of what we should be doing. We should be prioritizing China. And instead, we appear to be prioritizing Russia, even to the point where we may sacrifice our interests relative to China, which are much more long-term, in order to deal with Russia today. And I, I just, I don't, I don't know that I understand how that really works. That seems very short-term thinking. And uh, not only is it worse than naive, it's just short-term and, frankly, stupid. Well, and, you know, that segues nicely into what will probably be our final question of the day. In fact, it will be our final question today. But um, that is for me that, you know, in the lead-up to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I, I was I was publicly on record saying this. I don't think I'm, I'm making anything up now after the fact with the benefit of hindsight. But... I suspected that when Putin assembled the number of forces he did by late November, early December, that he was going to go in and that if he was going to risk the level of you know, international isolation that we've now seen very much came to pass, that he would go whole hog. He would try to take the entire country, not just a small sliver. Um, of course, I didn't see this going so badly for them, uh, but nonetheless, that, that was surprising to a lot of people. But my biggest fear at the time in November and December, and I mentioned some of this in my own writing, was the idea of a simultaneous coordination between Moscow and Beijing on their respective targets. That if if Beijing's argument for Taiwan is that this is not only not an independent country, which is sort of what it's sort of de facto been regarded now for some time, and not only not the true China, the democratic China, this is a rogue province. We don't even recognize national sovereignty. This is, if there will be a conflict, it will be an internal one and everyone should stay out. That's similar in some regards to the verbiage that Putin employed regarding Ukraine. This, you know, that kind of ranting speech he gave right before the invasion, you know, he basically claimed there is no Ukraine. It's a it's a Western anti-Russia that has been formulated solely to destabilize us. So 
very similar verbiage. My concern was if Russia moved on Ukraine at the same time that China moved on Taiwan, there would be no really successful American response um, because you can't fight a two-front war at that scale. Thankfully, that didn't occur, but I almost think something worse has now happened. That leads me to the question. Russia has moved first, and rather than being invincible, they've actually been quite damaged by this process and quite even humiliated militarily and in a large degree. And China's watching. And in some regards, I think that's worse because we know from Chinese history that after the Gulf War, what initiated this mass 30-year military buildup was watching how badly Saddam, who was at the time regarded as an almost pocket battleship power, a medium-sized, borderline large-sized military, got utterly destroyed by the American-led coalition. The disparity was yawning. And that sent China into a massive strategic reorientation to military buildup. They're watching what's happening in Ukraine. And my concern is, what does Beijing do from here? How do they adjust? Because they've now got a living textbook in the 21st century of how not to conduct an invasion. And they can adjust all their plans accordingly, even as we are focusing more and more on NATO deployments and a budget that barely covers inflation for the Defense Department and the Navy in particular. So the final question for me is, if you had 15 minutes with the President of the United States tomorrow morning, what would be your sales pitch in terms of what do you say in regards to the threat of China in light of Russia and how we meet that going forward once this Ukraine thing's wrapped up? And we'll just kind of end it there. We'll give you the last word. I think, well, I think the first thing is I would not put, I would not try to somehow push Ukraine for maximalist demands. I would find an ability to find a modus vivendi with Russia as quickly as possible that limits the death and destruction in Ukraine, may limit some of the territory of Ukraine. Uh, particularly the eastern side in Crimea, Donbass, that area, but would limit the, the death and destruction that get us in a situation where we're, we, America at least, is not the primary agent for supplying weapons. If the Europeans want to supply weapons to the western side of Ukraine and, and do that, then that is certainly something the Europeans should do. And uh, But we should not be in that mix. We should be spending what limited resource we have, which, by the way, we should be spending more, especially on the Navy, to build up the ships, not necessarily carriers, but we need a larger, we need a larger presence, even if it's mid-sized vessels, uh, to be able to be as flexible within the Asia Pacific as we as we're going to need to be. And our navy has been declining in numbers. I think that's a real problem. But we need to shift these resources. We don't need to add more resources into Europe. We actually should continue doing what Trump wanted to do, which is downshift some of our resources, even despite the Russian invasion. Because if the Europeans have come together now and recognize Russia as the threat then it's time for the Europeans to step up. And if they don't step up, then they don't step up, and that's their call. But for us, we need to shift our focus, because if we aren't ready, China is going to learn their lessons. Obviously, there's a lot of differences. Taiwan would be a naval attack, uh, which is more complicated than a land invasion. So there's a lot of things there. But they also have, you know, they've got missiles to, to, to blow the heck out of Taiwan uh, very quickly. Also, an island's much them. easier to cut off than, than you know, it something is. that's tied by land. Blockade, what are we going to do? Right. And obviously, they have high, they have missiles now that we appear to be carrier killer type missiles, and so some of the very power projection capabilities that we have historically had that has helped us to have so much dominance of the oceans, we are in at least in their near abroad, China's. We are now definitely in a situation where we may we would not have the advantage, uh, uh, and they would because of their lines of communication and their ability to dominate that near abroad. While we would have to be far more stretched out, even with multiple partners, we're going to be stretched out. 
we need to, to maximize that as much as we can with the Pentagon budget. I mean, the Navy is really the king of the future, and frankly, it needs to be upgraded. Uh, so my talk is we need to continue the path of, frankly, letting the Europeans take over their security in Europe, not getting bogged back down into a Middle Eastern conflict of, of any kind, and shifting over and, and finally doing, you know, Obama talked about it, Hillary talked about it, Trump talked a little bit about it, although he changed it, but the pivot to Asia, and I think there was the free, when it, there was a phrase that the Trump administration used, free and something Indo-Pacific. Free and open Indo-Pacific, I think. Free and open Indo-Pacific was the phrasing that Trump used, it was essentially the pivot, uh, a, an updated variant of, of Obama's pivot. We need to finally stop talking about a damn pivot, we need to actually do it. And the problem with this whole Russia thing, one of many problems, obviously, but from a grand strategic standpoint, I always used to say the country that won the war on terror was China, because it spent we, America spent twenty years in Mesopotamia and the, and the mountains of the Hindu Kush, running around taking care of, of the terrorist issue, and in some cases not that effectively, of course. While China focused on beating us, and they're near abroad. Well, if we end up doing the same thing again, except this time it's Europe.
by the way, China's going to also pay attention to all these financial transactions and all the stuff we've been doing to Russia with the sanctions, as you mentioned, the unprecedented sanctions. Think they're not going to come up with some economic alternatives? Obviously, it'd be hard. First of all, I'm not sure we could even do that and get Western agreement to do to China what was done to Russia just because of the sheer size of the Chinese economy for the reasons you mentioned. But China's going to try to prepare themselves so that we can't do that to them, even if we tried. Right. And perhaps be far more willing far more willing to throw some levers in reverse as well in terms of inflicting economic pain going the well, other direction. Well, I think direction. you're going to see that decoupling. Uh, I think the decoupling that sort of started that really happened. You had the Trump tariffs, you had COVID. You've had a lot of these things that have moved for some partial, but we still are buying more stuff from China right now, I think, than we were before Trump put tariffs on. If you look at the aggregate amount of imports. Uh, but I think what you're going to see is, is, a, is an effort and it's going to be an effort that China's going to push for, too. Uh, I think they recognize that we are never going to be satisfied with their regime, and they are going to seek as much. Uh, autarky is not quite the right word because they're not going to be completely self-serving, but uh, they're going to try to create a regional influence and power that is a regional autarky and regionalism. So I think what you're going to see is a kind of a West-China decouple with the rise of regionalism uh, rather than globalization as we've understood it through the early 2000s. And that is going to be the key to the multipolar world is clearly China and the U.S. are going to be the two biggest poles, but you are going to have other players involved. Uh, probably the most important will be India. And depending on what happens with Russia and how bad Russia is, but if Russia becomes China's energy appendage, which could very well be an outcome of the Ukraine conflict, then Russia may no longer actually be an independent pole, but just Well, it's been an absolutely fascinating discussion. I could keep it going for a long time. We're probably going to wrap it up there. But Mr. Greg Lawson, thank you so very much for joining the New Diplomacy Podcast, bringing such a theoretical mindset, a strategic mindset, and just an enjoyable discussion to our listeners, which I know that they'll appreciate very much. And I hope to have you back on the New Diplomacy Podcast very soon in the future so we can iron out some of the remaining strategic discussions. Gotta save the world. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you very much, sir. Appreciate it.